So before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to quickly remind you that my new book, The Gap, The Little Space Between What You Know and Don't Know, is now available for pre-order in both hardcover and ebook on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So the audiobook won't be available until right around or shortly after the published date of June 11th, 2019. But I love your early support. And if you would love to find out more about the book, then you could just head over to douglasvigliati.com backslash the gap. That's douglasvigliati.com backslash the gap. Or of course, you could probably just go on to Google and type in the gap, Vigliati, Vigliati, the gap, and you'll be able to access something pretty quickly that way. And I wanted to just thank any of the early readers because the feedback has just been spectacular. So thank you, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. With all that being said, let's jump right into today's episode. Is there anything more important than what you do? Yes, when you do it. My name is Doug Vigliotti and welcome to It's Not What It Seems. What's up, everyone? As always, thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, you're going to hear from one of the most successful nonfiction writers of our generation, someone who needs no introduction, so I'll keep it short. I have a great conversation with the one and only Daniel H. Pink. Dan is the author of six provocative books, including his newest, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which spent four months on the New York Times bestsellers list and was named a best book of 2018 by Amazon, iBooks, Goodreads, and several more outlets. His other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive and To Sell as Human. His books have won multiple awards and have been translated into 39 languages. He now lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. Dan was a ton of fun to chat with, and he doesn't even get mad at me for not introducing him as Daniel. Sorry, Dan. I was just so excited to have this conversation as Dan is someone who I have so much respect and admiration for, a real master of the writing craft. We have a wide-ranging convo that starts off talking about New Haven Pizza, moves into a little bit about his backlog of books, and then we get into some of the specifics of his latest book, When. In our conversation, you'll learn Dan's favorite pizza in New Haven, the first lesson he'd teach in the Dan Pink writing course, why he wrote all four of his previous books, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, A Whole New Mind, Drive, and To Sell as Human, the best time to do your most important work, the danger zone time period of the day, what is a lark, an owl, and a third bird, how do you figure out which one you are, the importance of taking breaks, and what is a nappuccino. Plus, we talk about much, much more, so let's not waste any time. I want to jump right into the episode with the one and only Daniel H. Pink. Dan Pink, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am beyond excited to have you on the show. You've been someone who I've been reading for a long time now. You know, when I think of the career or job title or whatever you want to call it, I guess when I think of the word writer, your name is probably one of the first that comes to mind. Hey, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So, but in all honesty, it it was a little harder to prep for this interview the most, only because typically when a guest comes on, 
I read their book or books right before they come on. So the material is fresh. And with yours, you know, I read them when they're published. So I had to do a little backtracking. So I guess that's a testament, though, to the admiration I have for your writing. So, so Okay, th- good. Thanks <laughs> for doing the work. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you've written a lot of great books, including your most recent When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. So we'll, we'll definitely be getting into that. But I'd like to start with uh, a little bit about you, Dan Pink, right? And I'm always interested in odd correlations. And you're a parent of three. So is there anything that parenting has taught you that's helped you with your work? Uh, Probably parenting has taught me humility, which is a very portable skill. So being more humble about what you know, how much you know, how right you are is, I think, really important in work and something that you learn as a parent pretty much from day two, if not hour two of being a parent. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. It's funny. So, uh, we didn't chat much before this and I'm not, you know, this, this is, this is an interview about Dan Pink, but, uh, the book that I have coming out in June is called the gap, the little space between what you know and don't know. So it's literally about that humility of understanding. We don't know everything. (laughs) Right. So, (laughs) So here's a question I'm sure you've gotten before, and it's probably hard to pinpoint as most of these things are kind of like an evolution, uh, but I'll ask it anyway. Was there a time or a place in life when you, you first knew that you were going to be a writer? No, exactly as you say, these kinds of things. I think life in general tends to evolve, emerge, arise from murkiness rather than have these very distinct black and white epiphany-like moments. So for me, it was a long evolution. Iteration after iteration. Yeah, iteration after iteration, kind of frobbing around, figuring out who I was, what I was about, trying some things, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't work, toggling between listening to the voices of others and listening to the voice in my own head, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it, I think that's true of, I don't think we people ever fully find their way. But as they begin finding their way, it is uh, less clear and distinct. It's much more, to me at least, a much more of a confusing exploration. I, I could totally, totally see that. So, so what was one of the things that you tried that you, you didn't like? Well, I went to law school, so that was a total <laughs> waste of time. So, think, so you know, thinking that that would be a legitimate thing to do rather than becoming a writer. Uh, I worked in politics for a while, and which I liked at the time, but then realized it wasn't what I was going to, didn't want to, it wasn't how at all how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. You know, over time, I think we search and we test and we, we evolve and we try to find our way in as imperfect a way as, as possible. So I do know that you were Yale law, correct? Mm-hmm. So you spent some time in New Haven? I did. So I'm from New Haven. So I have a lot of, oh, really? yeah, so I have a lot of Connecticut listeners. They might be interested to know, do you have a favorite New Haven pizza place? I absolutely do. Oh, here we go. Not even close. It is essentially no contest. And the winner is Pepe's. Oh, we're, is it, we're on the same team. I'm a Pepe's fan myself. And, and the reason is not only the deliciousness of the pizza, but that is the place where my wife and I had our very first date. <laughs> no way. That is... Uh... I even have a Frank Pepe's t-shirt um, <laughs> that I wear around. So there's a really sentimental... I mean, this really strikes home. There's no, totally. there's no, there's no comparison. I don't care. You, you could, someone said, Oh, they just, oh, someone, someone who lives there was telling me, Oh, we, they just opened this new place called blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's even better than Pepe's and Salas. And no, it's not. There's, there's too big. Nothing will ever exceed Pepe's. It can't. The return is just too great. It wasn't just the pizza. Right. So, and, and you also have here, there's a place in Washington DC where I now live. There's a 
pizza joint called Pizza Pizza. Pete's, P-E-T-E, apostrophe S. Okay. Pete's, a pizza, A-P-I-Z-Z-A. Pizza, pizza. And they have something that they call the New Haven, which is the white clam pizza that does not come anywhere close to holding <laughs> a candle. To you know, it's, it's, it's funny. When you eat a lot of New Haven pizza, it does cause you to, to be, you know, people always say, ah, I, I can always eat pizza. I can eat pizza anywhere. Pizza's pizza. But then when you have it. it Anybody who says pizza's pizza has, to me, disqualified themselves <laughs> from offering an opinion on any subject henceforth. Because that is so flatly and fundamentally wrong. I agree. I agree. It suggests such an incredible lack of insight and judgment that it makes me suspect anything else that's going to come out of it. Uh, this, is, this couldn't have been a better start to our conversation. I, I'm exuberant here right now. Let's circle back. Let's get off the pizza wagon for a minute. You know, I want to talk a little bit about just writing. One more question about the writing. And yeah. it's, you know, you've you had a long career in, in writing, right? So if, if you were going to teach maybe a course on writing, what would be the first lesson that you would teach? Oh, interesting. Um, I would say, I'll tell you, give me my first instinct. My first instinct would, would be a, a lesson about the importance of showing up. It wouldn't be about writing per se. It wouldn't be about this is how you construct a sentence. This is how to take the reader's perspective. This is how to build a narrative. This is how to structure an argument. It wouldn't be anything like that. It would be if you really want to be a writer, here's what writers do. They write. <laughs> okay? They don't talk about writing. They don't imagine being a writer. They write. And the only way to write is to show up. So if you really want to be a writer, it means you have to show up and freaking write every day. If you don't, you're not a writer. And I love that. It's uh, one of my favorite little books is Deep Pressfield's uh, Do the Work. Of course. Do the Work, right? Uh, his, um, it's not his first book, but his other book about the resistance is just extraordinary too. Yeah, War of Art, I believe that was. War of Art, yeah. Sorry, I was spacing out on the title. Yeah, The War of Art is a very important book for writers. Yeah, great books there for sure. So we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'm a big believer in process and iteration. So I think like things build on top of each other, even it's even if they're not in direct correlation. So then rather than kind of backtrack your entire career, because I'm assuming a lot of the listeners know at least of your books, and many of them. And all of your listeners have limited tolerance for anything that boring. <laughs> exactly. So I, instead, instead of doing that, I'd rather just kind of have you share, maybe go through a couple and share maybe what led you to writing that specific book. Okay, sure. So I think the first one, maybe your most creative work, well, it wasn't your first book, but it was the first one we're going to talk about, which is maybe your most creative. You were using Japanese art to pull along some of the concepts, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. What, what led you to writing that? Yeah, that's interesting. So that was actually one, that was my third book, and that was a graphic novel written in manga, Japanese comics, that was a graphic novel career guide. And, and what led me to it was a, was a bunch of different things. Number one is that I had spent some time in Japan and noticed that comics, manga, were used in Japan not only for you know, sci-fi or superhero stories or kid stuff, but across many, many genres, including nonfiction. So there were manga financial guides. There were manga histories. There were manga about personal development, you know, just manga about economics, manga about management. And I, and I thought that, that that form would be really interesting here in the States. And so I said, let me try to give it a whirl. So uh, I decided to write a 160-page graphic novel 
about a character named Johnny Bunko, who <laughs> is an accountant at the Boggs Corporation, and he has a dark night of the soul where he contemplates his path in life. And thanks to some magic chopsticks, he learns <laughs> the six essential lessons of any satisfying, productive career. You know, it's interesting. There you go. It's like something that indirectly, uh, you know, you learn along your journey, then kind of inspires you to put put a couple of the pieces together. Would you have done anything differently with that book? I don't think I would have done anything radically, radically different in that in that book. I mean, I'm actually pretty proud of that book because it was a departure from a lot of the things that I do. And it ended up, you know, I ended up using muscles that I didn't realize that I had. So probably of all of my books, I think that that was the one that I probably have the fewest regrets about. I love that. So, you know, I'm a big fan of squares that don't fit into square holes, you know, or things that are kind of off a little bit, things that have a little edge that haven't been polished out so much or, you know, a little bit just offbeat. So, so I really love that. So let's move on. So the next book was about why intuitive or thoughtful thinkers will rule the future, right? Although that, that book actually preceded the Johnny Bunker Oh, it did? Book. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I was, I'm a little out of sequence here. All right. A Whole New Mind. Yes. My apologies. That preceded. Okay. What incited that? I mean, that book makes an argument that the sorts of abilities that used to be critical for a decent job getting into the middle class uh, have become necessary but no longer sufficient, and a different set of abilities have become more important. And the metaphor that I use in the book is our brain. Our brains are divided in half. You've got the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. There's a lot, been a lot of crappy stuff written about left brain and right brain. There's a lot of real stuff that doesn't really comport with the science. But what we do know is that our brains are, you know, at some level fairly efficient. And over time, they've divided up tasks. So left hemisphere specializes in tasks that are logical, linear, sequential. The right hemisphere specializes in tasks that are more about simultaneous processing, about synthesis rather than analysis, about context rather than text. And I found that that metaphor offers a powerful way to describe what's happening in the world of work. It used to be that abilities characteristic of the left hemisphere, think of them as SAT spreadsheet skills, were the ones that were most important. And today, just to be very, very clear here, those abilities are essential. You have to have them. But if that's all that you have, you're going to be in trouble. And it's really a set of abilities that are more characteristic of the right hemisphere, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. Those are the abilities that are really become, that have become the first among equals. And there are a whole set of economic cultural forces that are driving us in that direction. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think that's interesting too because it kind of alludes to something that you said earlier. You know, the first lesson that you said if you were going to teach a writing course would be do the work or just do it, right? And I feel like those are the skills that, you learn by doing it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, I think there's some truth that I do think that some of these other more right brain skills can benefit from coaching and some level of instruction as well, but they're less reductive. So they're less, it's harder to train people in those things. People can learn them, but other kinds of things, people can be trained in a way, a, a word that I don't love the word trained because, you know, you know, it just, it's, it's a little bit controlling. I think I think maybe the next book will kind of get to that. We'll understand why you like a little more freedom, right? Or you yeah. believe in a little yeah. bit more freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, 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 <laughs> true, true, true. I just think 
you know, a lot of times it's hard to teach things like creative thinking. You know, you could teach concepts, but it, it, those are really experienced teachers. You know, it's tough. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, one of the big challenges with education right now, right? Like it's hard to teach those type of skills. So totally. let's move on. Next book. This was a big one. There's a big TED talk that's associated with this. You know, you've, it's, I think, I think in the top 10, well over 20 million views. And the major concept was what's driving us, what's motivating us, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. What led you? I mean, how did, how did this all, how did, were you inspired to write this? What, what happened? Well, in, in writing that previous book, A Whole New Mind, I was curious about the challenges for management. If, if more and more valuable work is going to be this more artistic, empathic work, rather than this more traditional kind of routine SAT spreadsheet, white collar work. I said, well, that, how do you manage people like that? Like, how, how do organizations build themselves so that they can motivate people who have these other sets of abilities? And that led me into some, just out of curiosity, looking at some of the research in social science, mostly social psychology, but also in, in, in some economics and other things, yep. and on the concept of motivation. And I was just staggered by what I found. What I found in a lot of the research on motivation is that what the science tells us is often very different from our beliefs and that that mismatch is a source of concern, but repairing that mismatch can be a source of opportunity. Yeah, no, totally. So I'm curious, have you updated your thinking at all since you originally wrote this? Um, well, I followed the research on this pretty carefully and the research I think is, it remains very, very sound. Um, on the on the key point, I, I guess the the one frustration, if we want to talk retrospectively and talk about frustrations or regrets or anything like that, is that I feel like I didn't do a good enough job. Exp I thought I did, and I tried to, but apparently I didn't, or people just didn't get it. That there's nuance to this explanation. So the idea, the main idea in the there are a lot of ideas in the book, but it basically says that this certain category of rewards, what psychologists call controlling contingent rewards. I call if then rewards as in if you do this, then you get that. Stick and carrot, right? Those, Stick and carrot. Yeah. 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 Those kinds of rewards are generally are, are good for simple, for simple tasks with short time horizons, but don't work very well for complex tasks with long time horizons. It's basically what 50 years of science tells us. And, and unfortunately some people looked at that and said, Oh, that means that money doesn't matter. Money isn't a motivator, which is absolutely false. What, what the science tells us is, is that those kinds of motivators are good for certain tasks and not so good for other tasks. And if you yeah. believe the arguments in, if you buy the arguments in a whole new mind, or even if you're willing to rent the arguments in a whole new mind for just a little short amount of time, what we're seeing in work is a shift toward the nature of work being much more complex, creative, and conceptual. Yeah. And so what we have is a set of motivators that are good for 19th, some of 20th century work, but have run out of steam for a lot of, not all, but a lot of 21st century work. That makes complete sense. And so it's not just to generalize, there's less and less factory jobs. There's less and less jobs where it's, you do this the same way, the same process, the same way over and over and over and over again. And there's more jobs that are requiring you to be think creatively, that are requiring you to think critically, that are that are using more of these They're soft skills. Judgment, judgment, discernment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And here's the thing, it's not only manufacturing jobs. Like in some level, the difference between our, our vocabulary, our categories haven't caught up to the truth of what work is really like today. So when we think about manufacturing jobs, 
and service jobs, that's not, to me, that's not a, a very useful distinction because right now what you see on manufacturing floors are, it's not this kind of popular image of some like, you know, burly 50 year old white man with grease on his shirt, turning yeah. the same screw the same way. That's yeah. that most manufacturing plants in America, at least don't look like that. It's usually people who are programming computers, people who are making judgments, you know, walking up and down a line of machines doing work and making judgments about defects or whether the machines are working properly. These are people usually with an associate's degree, sometimes even with a bachelor's degree, you know, and even in certain kinds of service jobs are themselves fairly routine. And, and, and for a long time, certain kinds of white collar work was, you know, when we think about blue collar and white collar, that distinction doesn't make any, any much of now too, because certain kinds of white collar work was very machine like. It was very routine. It was it was algorithmic. You were just following a set of processes, yeah. following a recipe with your brain rather than with your body. Yeah, totally. So, so I'm curious now, really curious. Is is that the reason why you wrote to sell as human? Because that that is an industry that I would that I would say would give a lot of push. I mean, I, I have experience in the industry um, myself, so I I agree with a lot much of the pretty much all of the philosophy that you lay out into sell as human for the record. But I'm curious, is that the reason, because that's an industry that would probably say money's a motivator, you know? And so is that part of the reason why you wrote it? Well, I think what's, I think it's a really interesting point. And, and in some, in some ways, one reason I wrote it was that after writing drive, people would ask, okay, so what about sales? Yeah. And what about, and what about sales commissions? And I started looking into that, doing a little bit of writing on that. And what I found, to my surprise, was that some companies, not necessarily a lot, or I found a couple of things. Number one is that some companies were eliminating sales commissions or making them less of an important factor in, in compensation. And the reason for that is that sales itself was becoming a much more complex creative enterprise. It wasn't simply just booking orders and executing transactions yeah. because a lot of that can be easily, easily automated, easily automated. So the sales jobs that remained required much more judgment of strategic thinking. In some ways, if you think about something like my own view on this is that if you think about something like B2B business, business sales, yeah, business to business sales today, once you get past a certain, like the very, very simple stuff is essentially a form of management consulting. Because the, the simpler stuff is purely transactional. You can do that online. The harder stuff, you actually need somebody who's a counselor, who's a trusted advisor, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. So that was one reason I was interested in that. The other reason I was interested in that, there are a bunch of reasons I was interested in that book on, on selling. It sort of goes back to what we were talking about before. I, I feel like, when, especially when it comes to work, reality is, is galloping at least a decade or two ahead of vocabulary. So what we had, if you look at what people are actually doing on the job, no matter what their job title was, a big portion of what they were doing was selling. Now, they might not be selling products or services to customers, but they were persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling. And I thought that that was going unremarked. And another factor in this is that I had in the course at this point, you know, I had been writing about business for a while. Um, you know, earlier when I first started out as a writer, I did a decent number of feature magazine stories, often about business. And what I noticed over the years of writing about business were that the people who were in sales were nothing like the stereotype of people in sales. 
like you had this notion of people in sales as, as kind of like shifty, not that smart. And I found that a lot of the people I was talking to who were in sales were some of the smartest, most sophisticated people I knew. Yeah. It's like, why is there this gap between the perception and the reality? And so I also felt like sales, and a lot of reasons behind this, actually. I also felt this like- is a, This was a soapbox book. In, in in some ways, no, it's, I mean, it's sort of scratching an itch or, or talking about things that bother me. I, I felt like, you know, sort of tied to that last point, I felt like in some ways sales wasn't being taken seriously enough. And so if you look at a lot of the books about sales, they're either kind of vacuous and empty headed and just exhorting people to, to believe in themselves, or they're a little bit slimy and smarmy. And I was, and I'm thinking, good God, like sales is a serious, difficult, intellectually rigorous profession and needs to be treated with as much respect as something like accounting. My take is usually it's it agrees again agrees a lot with what what you're saying it's but I I just think selling is there's a lot more soft skills that need to be acquired and you use a lot of this stuff that you're talking about, uh, the critical thinking, the creative thinking, right. that type of right brain activity, um, judgment, right? Like you're using a lot of that in selling. So, so when, you're, when you use the motivation structure of autonomy, mastery, purpose, it works really well, even in spite of the fact that, you know, for years and years and years, the incentive has been money, right? Or that's been the perceived the perceived uh, uh, incentive. But it, I think it works, you know, and, and I know sales leaders that were using Drive, you know, as a, as a book that people must, should read, you know? So, uh, and th- this is completely, I mean, we didn't talk about this at all before we got on the, you know, before we started having this conversation. So it's completely applicable to selling um, as it is to really anything, in, in my opinion, because of, as you say, that's just the way, our society's moving as a whole is, is you need to be able to perform those skills. And when you need to be able to perform those type of skills, then that incentive structure or that motive, you know, what's motivating you is more intrinsic than extrinsic. And so if, if correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm, if I didn't give, if I didn't sum that up. No, uh, that seems, that's totally fair. Totally fair. Okay. So I guess this is a good way to transition. Let's transition into your newest book. When, uh, this idea, you know, that people are kind of stuck on what to do, but not at all concerned on when they should be doing it. it. You know, it's, it's incredibly pertinent, obviously. And I think a good starting point would be, you know, your discovery of, or, you know, the discussion you raise about the three stages we move in through the day. Maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit more about it. Sure. So the idea behind this book is, is that, uh, timing, as you say, we make all kinds of timing decisions in our own life, you know, when to do stuff, but we don't, we make them in a very sloppy way. We don't give it much thought. We make them by default or by instinct. And that's the wrong way to do it. That there is across multiple, multiple disciplines, there is a, some really powerful evidence that can give us clues, data, facts, guidance about, in a science-based way about how to make better decisions about when to do things. And one of those facets has to do with the day. Uh, what we know is that there's a hidden pattern of the day that has a powerful effect on how we feel and how we perform. And what we know in general is this. Most people move through the day in three broad stages. There is a peak, there is a trough, there is a recovery. For about 80% of us, we move through the day in more or less that order. So we have a peak early in the day, a trough in the early to mid-afternoon, and a recovery late afternoon and early evening. Now, it's not true for everybody because about 20% of us one in five of us, one in four of us are, have what's called an evening chronotype. That is, we just naturally wake up late and go to sleep late. And for those people, it's much more complicated. But for them, 
the key thing is that they tend to hit their peak much later in the day, like, you know, late, late afternoon, evening, well into the evening. And what we know is a few important things. One, our brain power, our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. They change. They oscillate. We know that these changes can be bigger than we realize and that the best time to do something depends on what it is you're doing. And what we know as a general design principles is actually relatively simple and straightforward. During our peak, again, which for most of us is the, is early in the day, for night owls much, much later in the day, that's when we're highest in vigilance. And vigilance simply means our, it's our, vigilance is our ability to knock away distractions. Uh, so we're able to bat away distractions more easily. We're less distractible. And so during the peak, again, 80% of us, it's early in the day, 20% of us much later in the day, that's when we're better off doing analytic work, work that requires focus and attention, uh, where you don't want to be distracted. That could be writing a report, could be analyzing data, going over the steps of a strategy. That's afternoon. No, that's for, no, that's okay. for most of us. That's the morning yeah, yeah, okay, work that okay. requires like that kind of focus. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I, I think writing is a good example of that where, you know, any, anybody who writes knows that when you start writing, the whole universe begins trying to distract you from writing. And so you want to do your writing and that kind of work when you're less distractible. And that tends for most of us, 80% of us, that's early and that's in the morning, early in the day, 20% of us is in the evening. So I want to go on the record of saying that we're doing this, 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 we're having this discussion during the trough of the day. So it might have been, we are. it might have been improved if we did it, you know, six hours earlier. <laughs> we can, we can talk about that and, and what you can, and what you can do to mitigate that. So we are during this trough period. The trough period is a, is a terrible time of day. There are huge declines in performance across many, 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 many different realms. So during that trough period, we're better off doing our administrative work. We'll get to this interview in a, in a moment. <laughs> uh, uh, so we're better off doing our administrative work. And then during the recovery, again, which for most of us is late in the afternoon, early in the evening, we tend to be higher in mood, but not that high in vigilance. And that can be a good combination for certain things, for iterating new ideas, for brainstorming, for some certain kinds of creative thinking, where you want to be a little bit mentally loose. And so the recipe is fairly simple. We should be doing our analytic work in the peak, our administrative work during the trough, and our insight work during the recovery. Now, we don't have full control over that. And this interview is a, is a case in point. One reason we're doing it now is because I very rarely will do interviews in the morning because I use that as my writing time. I have a very limited number of hours in the day, very, very small window of time when I am vigilant. And I crowd all my writing in there so I can actually get something done. I would have, in an ideal world, scheduled this a little bit later in the day. <laughs> but as, as your listeners will know here in a moment, I had to push this to a slightly different time of day because I have to catch an airplane. And so it's not ideal. But what I did is I made sure I knew that I was doing this. And so I actually, uh, at about, we were going to talk at the top of the hour. At, at, at 45 minutes to the hour, I actually went and took uh, a little, I, I took a break. Um, I took a very, very short walk. I took like a three minute walk just to clear my head. So I, lo I love this. So I want to get into some of these little strategies, but first, should we just avoid the after doing anything productive in the afternoon? Like, like I know the administrative things, but if we're, it's really that bad, I mean, should we literally just break long-term in the afternoon and then come back, you know, three, four o'clock say, and, and, and pick up work then? 
Not necessarily. I think what we need to do is is recognize. I think the most important thing to do is recognize that. Again, as I said, our our cognitive abilities don't remain constant throughout the, the day. They change. And unfortunately, a lot of the way that we run our lives and the run organizations presumes that there's no difference in brain power between 9.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. And that's just flatly wrong. And so what we should do is we should take that into account when we plan what we do during the day. So during this trough period, again, you don't have full control over it. So let's say you actually have to do work. You're, you're on a deadline or something like that. You should be much more deliberate about taking breaks, maybe work for shorter durations of time. But the, I think the more important thing is that there's some of our work require is less mentally taxing than others. So you think about all of the email that you have to respond to in the day. Most of that is not that cognitively taxing. It has to get done, but most of it doesn't require massive amounts of brain power or creativity. It still has to get done, but it doesn't require necessarily your sharpest thinking. And so if you're someone like me who has their peak in the morning, the work, one of the stupidest things that I can do is come into my office at 8.30 in the morning and answer my email first thing. Yeah. Because what I'm doing is I take an hour to do that. I squander my, my peak time. Instead, what I should be doing is you know, maybe checking my email very briefly to see if there's something super duper mega urgent, which there rarely is in reality for any of us. Yeah. I love that. And then I love that. answering my, and then dealing with a pile of email at say one thirty when I don't need to be either cognitively sharp or cognitively creative. You know, I think the, the other big aspect too, didn't brush over it, but it was a broad stroke early when, when I first asked, when we first started talking about this was, you know, identifying what type of person you are. So it's, it's, you know, I think introspection is the essential first step, right? You have to understand, am I in that general audience of peak trough recovery or is there a, am I a different type of person? You know, because in the book you say there's what, larks, owls, and... And third birds. Third birds. So, but you also have a cool way to test that. So you have a way that you, it's an easy way for a reader to, or a listener to understand which group they fall in. Maybe you, you could share yeah, uh, but there, there also are, you know, they're scientifically validated ways. There's something called the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire, the MCTQ. There's something called the Morning Eveningness Questionnaire, the MEQ. Both of those are valid instruments for va for measuring this. There's a there's a back of the envelope way that I think is super, you know, like it gives you pretty interesting results. We can do, we can do it with you if you want. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I want you to think about what chronobiologists. Again, there's a field called chronobiology, chrono for time, biology for study of life that looks at our biological rhythms, especially our diurnal rhythms. And so uh, they use a term in chronobiology called a free day. I want you to think about this, a free day. A free day is a day when you don't have to wake up at a certain time. You can go to sleep whenever you want. You can wake up whenever you want. So I want you to think about a free day, not a free day when you're, you've been working nonstop for three weeks and need to catch up on sleep, but just a free day. It's like you're in control. You can go to sleep when you want and wake up when you want. On a free day, when would you typically go to sleep? A free day. I usually, I would say. Just, honestly, just naturally when your body tells you. Yeah, probably like 930. I'm an early sleeper. Oh, early. Okay. So, and then what time would you wake up? Five, five thirty. Okay, so so let's say let's let's say five thirty just to make it a round yeah, yeah. number. That that way you get a very healthy. I used um, to be much. I used to be much tighter on that. Go to sleep at a certain time, wake up at a certain time. But I've been a little more lenient with my. Okay, with my sleep. but even on a free day. So so what you have is you're going to sleep at. I start my days really early usually. Yeah, and waking up at when waking up at five thirty. So what we're looking for here is the midpoint of sleep. So your midpoint of sleep is one thirty a.m. 
And here's what here's here's a way to analyze. You take your midpoint of sleep. Uh, if it's before 3:30 a.m., you're a lark. If it's after 5:30 a.m., you're an owl. And if it's between 3:30 and 5:30, you're probably a third bird. So you are a lark and a very strong lark. If you look at the distribution of larks and owls in the population, you are on the far side of lark. You're and I definitely. I definitely go into sleepy zone in the in the afternoon. I mean, there's no there's no question in that about that. So for, so for you, you should do your you should definitely do your analytic work in the morning and probably beginning fairly early in the morning. So that's a very strong lark. So you should you know you might when do you typically begin your work? Really early in the morning. So I mean, I have a pretty tight I have a tight morning routine, very very tight. So I wake up. First thing I do is uh, actually meditate. First thing I do, then after that, I read for 30 minutes. After I read, I write for 30 minutes, and then basically starting my day right there. And if I have to, if I have time, I'll hit the gym. If I don't have time, you know, after that, if I don't, then I'll just continue to work. You know what I mean? So in the morning, and so I'm I'm working at probably by 6:30, 7 o'clock every morning. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's good. That so that that that's that's appropriate. Now for someone like me, I am on the lark side. I'm not a full-fledged lark, but I'm larky. I'm in the middle, but leaning very, you know, heavily toward lark. Uh, for me, you know, starting work at seven in the morning is just too early for me. Um, and so I'm better off starting at say eight thirty or something like that. This has been a this has been a big sticking point with past, uh, I should say, ex girlfriends. I'm I, I'm I get up very early in the morning, so it's like, I, and I'm not I'm I'm not typical when it comes to sleep schedule. So, so I'm but that's but you know, here's the thing: is like like I wouldn't. Just for your health and just overall productivity, I wouldn't fight that. And this is this is the kind of thing like people feel like they need to you know be one way or another. But at some level, it's not quite as like it's not it's not identical to height, but it's sort of like height. You know, I would love to be able to get up at four thirty in the morning and get and begin working at six o'clock in the in the morning. All right, but that's not how I'm wired. And I'd also like to be you know six foot nine and be able to dunk, but that's not happening either. <laughs> so. So you just you have to go with you have to go with what you have, and I think that the, the key point for organizations, well, I think the key point for individuals is you have to listen to that and follow your own rhythm, and then the key point for organizations is that you know you don't try to make people, you don't have someone you don't make someone like you, do an all nighter, or you don't say hey no one else is coming to the offices early, don't get into the office till nine, and you're like well wait a second I'd be wasting my some of my prime hours. Yeah, and I think one of the the troubling things that happens too is that. You know, you, you'll get all these go get them, Charlie writing things that will tell you start your day early. And then all these people then try to start their day earlier than they should. And it's just like, do what works for you. Right. Like, that's what you're saying. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. So a lot of that advice, you know, everybody should get up at 430 and start working. at five. I mean, that's 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 nonsense. You know, there are going to be some people who because of their literally because of their biology are going to be better off waking up at nine in the morning and actually getting a slow start to the day and really buckling down on their, you know, their heads down focused, most important work from, you know, seven in the evening until midnight. I've gone back and forth with this and I've done a to-do list, a specific kind of to-do list, not just like I put anything down. Mm -hmm. So I usually will do to-do list where I list out the most important tasks that I have to do first and then work through those. And I've also done it where I've scheduled my day. Mm -hmm. So I've gone back and forth with both of those. And, you know, the common, most people say, if you want to control your time, schedule your day. For me, I found the to-do list with listing the most important things to do first to be more beneficial. What's the research say? Or what is, what's your thoughts on that? My thoughts on this is people should do what works for them. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a one size fits all, but I think you've done a good job of 
figuring out what the kind of gradations are. I mean, scheduling your work is not a bad idea. Scheduling everything is not a bad idea if you're scheduling it in a sensible way. So, you know, so if you're saying, oh, I'm going to have the, the most important meeting of my, I'm going to have this meeting and it's usually important. I'm going to have it at two in the afternoon, which for, for many people is a terrible time of day. That's a, that's a bad idea. If you say, <laughs> oh, I'm going to do my writing at between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m., that's generally a bad idea. So you have to schedule it in, in the right way. Again, I think people should do what's, what's best for them. Yeah. What works for me is, and I think I'm pretty, you know, for a lot of these kinds of things, I tend to be kind of sort of in the middle of all these. Like I'm not an extreme lark. I tend to be a sort of like a median kind of person on a lot of these things. And for me, what works is this. I think about what are the things I have to do during the peak period? What are the, th- what, what are the things I have to do during the day? And I try to group them into the peak period the trough period and the recovery yep. period. So in an ideal world, I would have done this interview with you later in the day during the recovery period. Okay. But we don't live in an ideal world. So that didn't happen this time. So I would have scheduled that a little bit later in the day. So I would say, you know, what am I going to do during the peak? What am I going to do during the trough? What am I going to do during the recovery? But I would also prioritize. So what I do, my prioritization thing is, is what I call the MIT well, I mean, it's not my idea. It's been yeah, around yeah. for a while. What's called the MIT, the most important task. And I will literally write that down. What's my MIT today? Yeah. And I will almost always do that first. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I think I, I follow that that same model there. So I think this would be a good time to talk maybe a little bit about a, a couple strategies that you recommend because each chapter does end with what you call the Time Hacker Handbook, which is essentially is practical advice implementing the research and the conclusions that you make throughout the chapters. So let's talk about maybe a strategy, one strategy. And I think you started mentioning one earlier that, that you seem to be pretty bullish on for listeners to implement, you know, because you absolutely think they should or maybe has the strongest research to support it. Well, I mean, there, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of really important tips there. I, I think that the, the first one that I would say, which we've been talking a lot about is simply recognizing that your brain power changes over the day and figuring out, you know, I mean, at some level you can say, what's the most important analytic task I have to do today? What's the most important uh, insight task I have to do today? And um, scheduling those at the appropriate time based on your chronotype. I was thinking uh, you had mentioned it about taking breaks. Well, breaks are, you know, breaks are also important. And and I think that that's the case where you do want to be intentional and schedule things. I mean, what we know about breaks is that, and in writing this book, when I started out writing about breaks as a facet of the day, but the research proved so overwhelming that I realized that breaks needed their own chapter. And the research on breaks is really powerful. And what it says is that we should be taking more breaks and certain kinds of breaks. Just a little bit more on that. uh, What we know about breaks is that the kind of break we take has a big role. So we know that breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own. That's true even for introverts. We know that breaks where you're moving are better than breaks where you're stationary. We know that breaks outside are better than breaks inside. And we know that breaks that are fully detached are better than breaks that are semi-detached, meaning don't talk about work, don't bring your phone with you. So one small thing, I mean, I, I actually think that you would see it literally, I'm not, I'm not joking about this, that if every worker in America each afternoon would take a 15 minute walk outside with someone they liked <laughs> without their phone talking about something other than work i think we i think we would see a productivity gain yeah i mean so sometimes when i'm when i'm working and i feel like i'm 
too stuffy. I just get up, I, I move my laptop closer to the window and see the daylight as I'm working. And it kind of wakes me up a little bit. Is there anything with that? Absolutely. There is a, there is a, there is a lot to that. Now, not another, now, what kind of office are you in? Like, what do you see out of your window? I don't see anything out of my window because I'm facing a wall as I, as I work. Oh, interesting. So I have okay, to so literally that, turn around and move. So, so, well, when you look out the window, what do you see? Uh, bushes. <laughs> yeah. So there's actually research on this showing that, okay, so let's go back to this idea of outside is better than inside. One of the reasons for that is that there is some really, I'm surprised this hasn't gotten more notice because the research is just piling up some really powerful research about the restorative effects of being in nature. And, and when I say in nature, it doesn't mean you have to be in the woods somewhere in New Hampshire. I mean, it just means yeah. being exposed to greenery in, in some way. There's even research showing that Let's say you're. Let's say that you're in Minnesota, right? And you want to take a break. Uh, you're better off taking a break where you can see greenery than you are if you can't see greenery. That there's a difference in mental restoration based on people simply being able to see the greenery from indoors versus not being able to see it. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. It's you know, this is like this, one of the single biggest reasons that I might uh, or I'm looking at relocating is because of the light, like the natural daylight problem that I have. Yeah, yeah. It, so some of it is light. So so there are two different things going on here. One of them is light, one of them is nature. And I, they I don't know how they interact, but you're two different mechanisms. So the nature so something simply being exposed to nature seems to be a mental restorative. With light, light is more complex because one of the reasons that we figure, like we have this, we have our natural chronotype, but one of the ways that we move through the day naturally is that we, is, is through something called entrainment, where we essentially sync up to light and dark in our world. And so, so you, what you could be doing is, you know, some degree of entraining with moving to the light. Wow. So I, that, that, I feel like we can go a lot deeper into that, but there's one more little strategy that I want to touch on because it's something that I only do half of it, but I think I'm going to try the other half of the strategy, the Nappuccino. So, right. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm a napper. I'm a napper. I'm a, I, do, okay. I do a 20-minute 20 uh, 20 afternoon nap, but I don't Good. do the coffee or anything before it. Yeah. So how does that work? Do you have coffee any other times of the day? Just in the morning. I usually, I usually don't have caffeine in the afternoon. Okay. Um, you know, if that works for you, go for it. So here's what we know about naps in general. Naps are pretty darn good for us. They can, <laughs> again, like a lot of these other kinds of breaks, can restore mental acuity, uh, boost our mood a little bit. Naps are, are surprisingly good for us, better than I would have expected before I looked at the research. However... There's an ideal length nap, which you seem to have nailed. The best naps, the most, the, the most effective naps are between 10 and 20 minutes long. Once you nap longer than that, you begin to accumulate what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you wake up from a long nap. The ideal nap is really between 10 and 20 minutes. There's a lot of research that shows that that actually gives your brain, your mind, your soul a little bit of a cleanse, a little bit of a restorative, and uh, without the droopiness from sleep inertia. Now, the way to sort of get extra oomph out of that is to have a cup of coffee right before you take your nap because it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to get into our bloodstream. So if you drink a cup, of, let's say you drink a cup of coffee at two o'clock and then say take a 20 minute nap and you wake up at say 221, by 225, you'll have the restorative of the nap, but 
the caffeine will be hitting your system so you get a second boost. Love this. Love that. Such a such a clever way to do it. You know, the other thing too that kind of led me to just doing the 20-minute nap was I read the uh, the book Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker, yeah, the whole thing book. about sleep pressure and how, you know, you don't want to release too much of that sleep pressure. So it's funny, you had mentioned that if we were going to do this interview in an ideal state, we would have done, you know, you would have done it later in the day. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like everything, I try to taper everything off as the day gets later and later and later. Mm. Like I, I easily get worked up. So I, I don't want to work myself up as, as like later in the day because then it's harder for me to settle down. So like, mm-hmm. at, like you can't even contact me after eight o'clock at night. Like literally nobody can, I don't answer, I don't answer my phone. I don't, t- because you, I can't, I, I get worked up so easily. So I can't wind myself down. So I, I don't know if that plays into anything, but that's a whole nother thing. I, unless you want to. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't, I don't know any of the research on that. One of the things that I, that I know myself is that there are, certain books and things that I don't want to read late at night because yes, it might get me thinking too much. Got to watch brainless t- television. That's it. Like you got to yeah, or, or even, or even things like, you know, that are interesting, but like, you know, aren't necessarily related to something that you're working on, <laughs> you know, um, that, that'll make you start like wanting to take notes and thinking about <laughs> stuff. Love that. Okay. So this has been great. We are getting close to the top of the hour. So with that being said, we, we, we do have the final five questions, my, the rapid fire questions sometimes. All right. But always want to give the guest opportunity. Do you have a final ask for the audience or maybe a best place you want to direct uh, listeners to online? People can just go to my website. It's uh, danielpink.com, D-A-N-I-E-L-P-I-N-K.com, danielpink.com. I've got all kinds of – got an email newsletter. I, I have these short videos called Pink Casts, uh, information about the books, all kinds of groovy stuff. Excellent. We'll link some of that stuff up in the show notes as well. So you ready for the final five questions? Yeah, hit me. Uh-oh. I don't know. I don't know because I'm a little bit nervous about whether I'm going to be quick enough on my feet at this time of day. <laughs> the trough. What's one musician or band that's influenced you or your work? It's good. I'll give you the first answer that I have, which is it's going to be – it's so demographically stereotypical. <laughs> But I'm going to say I'm going to say Billy Joel only because there's a point in my life where like I basically know every Billy Joel lyric that there is. So at some level, that kind of cheesy rhyming way of doing things has probably infiltrated my own writing. That's okay. That's uh, that, 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 that's that's good. I'm going to give you honest answers rather than answers that make me look good. That's perfect. I love that. I'm uh, I'm commit commitment to the truth. That's especially uh, because I'm too slow witted right now to think of answers <laughs> that make me look good. That was my plan. Get you get you basically in- when you interrogate somebody, you, you wear them out. And so when they're so tired, they just give uh-huh. you the truth. Uh-huh. Now I see. Now I see where this is gone. What's one piece of advice you wish you'd never hear someone give again? Follow your passion. What would you say instead? Uh, do what you do. Watch what you do and then do that. Um, I think the idea that, that people uh, should be looking for their quote-unquote passion is, is, is misguided in a number of different ways. Number one, it's like, I don't think we always know our passion. And I think that it's a, it can be a very daunting question. The other thing is, is that at some level, it's too internally focused. It's not enough about what you're contributing to the world. And so for me, as someone who's been a writer for 20 years, if you had asked me 20 years ago, 25 years ago, is writing your passion? I would have said, I don't know. You asked me today, is writing your passion? I don't know. But if you say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. That's how I conceive the world. That's what I do. Love that. What's one quote or motto you live your life by? 
one quarter model. Well, I mean, I, I that I at least aspire to live my life by. I'm not sure I do. Uh, it's a quote from Viktor Frankl. It's one of my favorites who says, uh, live as if you were already living for the second time and as if you had made the mistakes you were about to make now. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm, uh, does that come from uh, Man's Search for Meaning? Or uh, I've read it, but I don't know. I don't remember it, but that, I've never heard it. You know what? That's a really good point. I don't think it comes from Man's Search for Meaning. I think it comes from some other Frankel writing, but I'm not certain about that. I've never heard that one before. I really like it. What's one book that's impacted the way you think? Not your favorite book, the one that's just one that's impacted you. Uh, an odd choice, but I would say John McPhee's A Sense of Where You Are, uh, which was a book I read as a kid or, you know, like a 12 year old, something like that. And uh, I was a kid who was always into sports, very much into sports. And, uh, and, you know, and so when I read as a little kid, I would read a lot about sports and a lot of the stuff for kids about sports is just crap. Yeah. And at one point, a librarian uh, steered me to John McPhee's book about Bill Bradley at the time, who was a you know, who, who, had, who had played for the New York Knicks, and this is about his time as a basketball player at Princeton University. And I guess it showed me that there, there are different ways to explore topics, um, and that just simply like reading autobiographies of baseball players was a little less satisfying than reading a really, really good work by a really good writer that happened to be about sports, but was, but was really about life. Interesting, very, very interesting. So here's the final question. Everyone gets it. What's one thing you want to tell the world? It's not what it seems. I would say that there are a lot of people out there. Interesting, obviously, thematically appropriate question. I sort of had an inkling this one was coming. <laughs> uh, there was a time in my life. I don't want to talk about other people. Talk about myself. <laughs> Go for it. There, were, there was a time in my life when I actually was concerned about what people thought of me. Um, I would, uh, you know, I would do things in part because how, you know, in part because of how they look to other people. And I was concerned about other people's opinions of me, other people's views of me. Um, and then I discovered something very important about what people were thinking about me. And it was this, it was not what it seems. I had this idea that like, here's what people were thinking about me. And that's what it seemed to be the case. And what was really the case was that they were not thinking about me. They were thinking about themselves. Um, and so if you start guiding your life by what other people are thinking of you, you're going to make a big mistake because you're going to lead, it's going to lead you to inauthentic conclusions. And it's a foolish idea too, because nobody's thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. Love that. Couldn't pick a better way to end this conversation. Dan, this has been uh, a ton of fun. I really uh, appreciate you. Yes, I have enjoyed it. It's a great conversation. Thanks for thanks for doing it. Yeah, I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, you know, I want obviously everybody to go and check out when scientific secrets or, or scientific secrets of perfect timing, or if anything, just just remember the, the the peak, the trough, and the recovery. I think that's the most important part, right? I mean, geez. So thanks. Oh, the whole the, the entire book is important. Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah. Only that, yeah. But I think that you need to read the entire thing in order to get the full majesty of it. Read it. Read it. Love it. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it. This has been a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Wait, before you go, I used to ask people to rate and review the podcast because it helps people find the show and it helps the show in general. 
But what I realized was this was kind of self-serving. And sure, I put a lot of work in the podcast and I care a lot about it. But honestly, I don't really care if you rate it or review it. Although I'd be honored if you did. What I truly care about is if you actually do like it. So you're inspired by it or you tune back in and you're excited to listen to the episodes that you share it with somebody else. Tell a friend, family member or a colleague. This happens to be a much straighter line to helping the show and helping other people find the show. But that's all I've got. I promise my rant is over now. Thank you so much for listening and your ongoing support.